The lesson for our consideration this morning is the one from Revelation chapter 21. I'm going to reread it for you now. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, the Alpha, the Omega, Jesus Christ. Good grief is an oxymoron like jumbo shrimp, government assistance, working vacation. Good grief doesn't make any sense when you think about it. Sorry to Charlie Brown because that's his favorite thing to say. Grief cannot, by definition, be good. Grief is, by definition, bad. But what's with this natural desire we all have to make grief good? Why do we keep feeling the need to move past grief as fast as humanly possible, to turn grief into a friend, into a teacher? Because that's what we do when we use phrases like I have to find the lesson in this. Everything happens for a reason. Suck it up, buttercup. Whatever doesn't kill me will only make me stronger. It's like we're afraid of just calling a bad thing bad. We, we're afraid of giving ourselves permission to feel grief. We've got to get it out of our heads as fast as possible. As we take a, look, a closer look together at John's words in Revelation, we'll see that we're not, our goal is not to make you as depressed as possible, to live life according to grief, but to find out what it means, how comforting it is to be able to call grief what it is and move beyond it, because grief itself in Christ is defeated. But you know who learned that grief is not that great of a teacher, that grief is not that positive of a thing, is the American author Ralph Waldo Emerson. Emerson lost his son when his son was just five years old to scarlet fever. And as an accomplished, seasoned, practiced author, what he did as the result of this loss was he wrote about it. And in his writings, he said something like, the greatest thing that hit him when he lost his son, his greatest grief was that grief had nothing to teach him. 
It moved him not one step further into understanding what it means to be human. You know that to be true already. Grief is a terrible teacher. Grief, going through hardship in your life, doesn't teach you anything. It doesn't advance you. You, don't, you come out the other end no better than when you started, don't you? You don't understand anything more about being human that you didn't already know. Grief has a lesson for us to learn, but it's a lesson you already knew, isn't it? Try telling the patient that there's a lesson in this to be learned when they have just learned from their doctor that they have cancer. Try saying there's a lesson to, uh, there's a lesson to this to the teenager whose dad walked out on him simply because he didn't feel like being his dad. Go back in time to the last time grief knocked you flat on your back and you didn't know what to do next. If you tell yourself, there's a lesson in this. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. How would you react to being told that in that moment? How would the first century Christians react to being told there's a lesson in this while they were weeping, while they were crying for their own friends, for their own family members who were killed by the government, who were dragged off to prison, by the ones whom God had appointed to protect them as their government. Is there a lesson in the fact that the Roman government chose to persecute and kill and imprison Christians simply for loving Jesus, simply for going against the cultural grain, refusing to worship the emperor? All they wanted to do was go to church and love their neighbor, and the government killed them for it. What's the lesson? It's one you already know that this world and we ourselves and the entire human race are profoundly messed up. This life and this world is so far from what it could be, from what it should be, and from what it was created to be, that compared to the good earth we learn about in Genesis, this is an abomination, isn't it? But you know that already. So we can call a spade a spade. You can call grief bad because grief, anxiety, depression, sadness, anger, stress, these are all our emotional responses to the truth we see every day. That this world is wrecked by sin and so are we. You can grieve that because that's not the whole story. Revelation is a list of visions, is a battery of visions, one after the other that God is giving to John. And they're amazing and they're spectacular. A lot of folks, a lot of good-meaning Christians are afraid to read Revelation because they're afraid of how different it is, how different it seems to the rest of the Bible. And in fact, that's why there are so many different interpretations of Revelation out there is because so many people think that Revelation is something new to the rest of Scripture, that Revelation offers something brand new that Scripture hasn't already been talking about, but nothing could be further from the truth. I hope you saw it in the connection between our lesson from Revelation and the words of the prophet Isaiah. 
that Revelation is teaching us. John, God, through John, is showing us the truth that has always been there, ever since the Garden of Eden. John is giving these, given these visions to see, these amazing visions at different parts in Revelation. John is terrified. At other parts, he's shouting for joy. At different parts, he's weeping. He's all over the place. You have to wonder what it must have looked like to be John receiving this revelatory vision one after the other, and then to have this really difficult task of having to sit down and write what he saw. But he has to. Because there's something so important for us to learn in Revelation. And so John has to pick and choose. He has to form his words just right so that we get what he saw and get the point of it. In our lesson for today, we see God gives us a metaphor that we can hang on to, something we can understand, but then it just blows our minds wide open when we really think about it. God gives us the picture of a wedding. Those of you who are married, those brides of, who have had their wedding day already, you remember how stressful that was? How was the day before your wedding? There was probably some amount of stress. I know for my wife there was. I don't want to speak on her behalf because she's not here right now. I, I called her out for that. But the day before is when months and months and months of preparation come to a head. So you have your big picture items, right, that have to go perfectly right. And there's always something that could go wrong. In fact, there's always something that does go wrong. So there's the big stuff, and then there's all this extra little stuff, the stuff that you forgot about, the last-minute items. you got to send your bridesmaids to do this and that. Then there's the things that the bride has to keep in her head. You got to greet Uncle Tom this way. You got to make sure you walk around and, and, and make nice, nice with everyone at the reception so that everyone feels included. You got to be a host a little bit. Not only are you a bride, it's kind of stressful until that moment when she's ready and there's no more preparation to be done. And she stands at the back of the church with her hand in her the crease of her father's arm. The music starts. The congregation rises. They turn to look at her and behold her beauty. And she walks in. And maybe, hopefully, she forgets all that stress. And she remembers what we're all here for. This is not just a fancy party. This is not just a party celebrating two people who really, really like each other. This is about a marriage. That during the ceremony, bride and groom are going to promise their lives to each other. They're going to go and they're going to live together for as long as they shall live. That's what the people are gathered there to celebrate. The, the, the marriage that ensues after that day. We get it. We get how joyful and how amazing that is. There's something about a wedding that nothing else can quite replicate. So how smart is John? How smart is God to picture what's coming like a wedding? But who comes down the aisle? It's you. All of you. God's church, which consists of God's people. The new Jerusalem, you are called. 
And you are dressed, you are, you are beautified by God on your wedding day because what's coming is Jesus is going to take you and you are going to live in his presence forever. He is going to dry all your tears. When you're with Jesus, there will be no mourning or pain or crying of any kind. But this is not something brand new to the Bible, is it? This is John's vision of the culmination of a promise that was given in the Garden of Eden. When God looked at Satan square in the face and said, Your days are numbered, devil. I will triumph over you. I will destroy you. I will send an offspring of the woman who will crush your head, Satan. This is the culmination of what Christ has offered and promised to you through his life, death, and resurrection. The forgiveness of all of your sins. The freedom from the guilt of your sin. The freedom from the power of the devil and the freedom from the sting of death. John is envisioning that future day that is coming for you and me, brothers and sisters, when grief will be gone, when sins and its effects will be slayed, when all of our enemies will be dead and buried, and we will enjoy a peace unlike anything we've ever experienced. Can we understand it this side of heaven? No, of course we can't, because this side of heaven, we don't know what it's like to live a life free from crying, from pain, from mourning. But we will when you see Jesus and live and dwell in his presence face to face. It might seem to some that all we're doing is giving you another way to gaslight yourself. That when you grieve, when you mourn, when you're sad, when you're troubled, that all you have to do is just think about heaven and those problems should go away. Stop grieving, think about heaven. That's not, that's not what we're saying. That's not John's message in Revelation. That's not God's message in the Bible. What we are saying is that grief is real. The stress that you felt at work this last week, that was real. The relationship stress that you're going through, the, the work that you have to do to maintain your relationship, that's real. The bad things about your life are real. We can call a spade a spade. This life is wrecked by sin. That's true, but... Put it in its proper context. That's the way to defeat an oxymoron, isn't it? Jumbo shrimp just sounds like an oxymoron. When you compare jumbo shrimp to other shrimp, you can see why they're called jumbo shrimp. Put your grief in its context. I know that's hard. Because when you're sad, when you're stressed, when you're suffering, it's hard to focus on anything else other than what's, the ca what's causing you to feel that way. But that's the point of Revelation. Is that even this moment in which you're, you're going through it, you're suffering through it right now, fits into an eternal picture where God wins. Where God will triumph over your sin and God will triumph over your grief your grief will not last for the rest of your life. There is a definite cutoff point. And it might sound like an oxymoron, but it's not. That Jesus' future triumph and future victory over our sin and death means that we're victorious right now. 
the fact that grief will not have the final say, that your death and that the devil will not have the final say, means that you can get them to shut up right now by focusing on the beauty of that wedding day that's coming. Brothers and sisters, if you're somebody who looks at what the world has to offer and says, there's got to be more than this, you're right. Jesus is for you. If you're somebody who's troubled by the way of the world and you see the effects of sin and you say, this is not right, it shouldn't be this way, you're absolutely correct. And Jesus is for you. Jesus said in our gospel for today, blessed are you who hunger for righteousness, for you will be satisfied. Jesus says in Revelation that to the thirsty I'll give water without cost from the spring of the well of eternal life. If you don't feel quite at home, if being alive in this world bothers you a little bit, relax. Your true satisfaction is coming. Righteousness is coming. And if that's the lesson that grief has to teach us, if that's all that we take away from our suffering, from our hardship, from our mourning this side of heaven, that's enough to look to Jesus and to look forward to that day when it's all done. That's enough of a lesson, isn't it? Amen.